0: So, here we are. This is it. Sermon number 46 in our series on the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus for him to show to his servants. We're told at the very beginning of the book that Christ made this revelation known by sending his angel to John and John was told to write it all down and to share it with the rest of the servants. That would be us. We're the rest of the servants. So it's a message for the world. Because God so loves the world. Which means that we were in mind when the series of visions, the series of strange visions and weird imagery, it was being transmitted and we were in mind. God had all people in mind from then until now and until Jesus returns. The message is for all of us because the gospel message, which is what this is, the gospel message is equal opportunity. It's available to everyone. And this adds to our belief, our approach, that the book of Revelation is best understood from an idealist perspective because it applies to all people at all times. The, the preterist approach, we've discussed this, holds that most of the events uh, described in Revelation would have occurred by AD 70. The futurist believes that most of the events are yet to be yet to come, uh, and, and so they're clearly focused on just the end times. The historicist sees these visions as a series uh, of uh, events timelines that we can chronicle and decipher and decode and it'll tell us exactly when Jesus is going to come. But our idealist viewpoint says that the visions describe patterns and, and trends that are going to be repeated throughout time leading up to Jesus' return. They, they reveal the struggle between good and evil. Because Satan is always trying to disrupt God's redemptive plan. And because these patterns repeat, because human nature remains unchanged all of these years later. We can learn from what's happened before. All of these messages throughout the Bible apply to us today. We're we're to be encouraged to persevere and endure and overcome like the saints from throughout history. So we believe this book has and will continue to be applicable until Jesus returns. Which is an event clearly foretold, it's just not clearly specified in time. But we have been told again and again, we're going to see it when we, when we launch into 1 Peter in a couple weeks. We'll be reminded that as followers of Christ, this world is not our home. Hallelujah for that. We are strangers and exiles. We, we endure this world while we look forward to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And when he comes, then we will see and we'll, we'll experience the fruit of our faith we will truly see and, and deeply feel, I think, the truth of Paul's words, that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what we've been reading and hearing about over the last few weeks, certainly. Uh, after evil has been destroyed, which includes not just the earth dwellers, those who refuse to worship God, but the destruction of evil includes the final and eternal condemnation of the devil himself, Then, and only then, King Jesus reveals the new heaven and the new earth. We're given a glimpse of this new Jerusalem. And you heard about the descriptions of that magnificent place, and and hopefully we came away with an understanding of how perfectly this fulfills so many prophecies from throughout the ages. And now as you go back, having gone through Revelation, and you go back and read the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and, and you'll, you'll begin to see that the, the parables make so much more sense. The allegories, the, the numbers, the metaphoric language that we've seen throughout these visions, it all say, starts to make so much more sense, and it's a remarkable thing to read. It will be an even more remarkable thing to behold. So after all this has been spelled out, After all these words of encouragement, all the the calls to persevere, the reminder of what we have to look forward to, especially after the last couple of chapters, which Randy covered, there is this interesting postscript, almost, at the end of this book. We'll start in Revelation 22, starting in verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So I think the first thing for us to notice here is that after everything that's been revealed throughout these first 21 chapters, John here is once again given a reminder from the angel, maybe the same angel that's been involved all the way through, showing, revealing things. And the reminder John's given is, these words are trustworthy and true. You can count on this. The message that you've been given, these visions that you've been given, they've been sent by God to show his servants what must soon take place. This is absolutely true. Not in every detail, but in the grander picture. And this actually, this, 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 this reminder goes back to the very first verses of the book. We're told the message was given to his servants. We saw that in, in the beginning. And because this is the word of God, that makes it trustworthy and true. And it's not just the words in Revelation, but the, the angel says that the prophets of old were given prophecies that were true. We've mentioned this repeatedly as we've gone through uh, the book of Revelation. Out of 404 verses, there's something like 270 references or allusions to the Old Testament. That's amazing. We're being shown this picture that God is unchanging And faithful and true all the way through. And so is his word. Which gives some people pause here. All right, if if these words are trustworthy and true, well, when it says that this will soon take place, and yet we're still here talking about it, what's up with that? How does that make sense? We've talked about this before. There's a fair amount of discussion as to what soon means in this text. The, the, the preterist approach relies heavily uh, on a literal interpretation. This, they would say most of the events here took place by AD 70. That's their interpretive lens. Outside of the preterist camp, most of the rest of us realize that applying our understanding of soon to an eternal, infinite God is Problematic coming from a bunch of people who wear (laughs) wristwatches. Our perception of time is not God's perception of time. I think the soon here just means that it will happen. It makes it more definite for us. You know what, it's kind of like, I think if you say to someone, hey, nice to see you, let's get together sometime. Right? That's different from Hey, nice to see you. Let's get together. What are you doing next week? See, that's not any more definite, but that makes it seem like it's more of a possibility, right? It, this is a, an eventual reality. You are going to get together sometime. I think that's kind of what how this soon works here. It, it affirms for us that it is going to happen, and it helps keep us on our toes in terms of spiritual preparation. So, while a lot of people get hung up on the soon part, it seems to me the real message here is the second half of that verse. Which comes after Jesus says, I'm coming soon, because then we see what is the sixth of seven benedictions or blessings to be found in the book of Revelation. And not only that, but this particular benediction, or this blessing is very reminiscent of the very first benediction. In chapter 1, verse 3, we read... Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And in chapter 22 we read, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So I did some handy coloring in a phrase just to make it simple for all of us. Both verses contain commands in blue. We are called to keep the words. Keep the words in this book. Do what's written here. Both have green sections referring to What we assume is a measure of time is just not our measure of time. The time is near. I'm coming soon. But then we see the differences here, right? chapter 1, we're called to read aloud these words. That doesn't appear in chapter 22. Chapter 1 says we're blessed if we hear them. Not included in chapter 22. So if we follow that pattern from verse 1, we read aloud, we hear the words. We'll be blessed to hear them and read them and not just to hear them and read them but to keep them to to understand them to live them that's what we see in chapter 22 so presumably here at the end of the book we see that the real the eternal the ultimate blessing comes to those who keep the words of prophecy in this book at this point if we made it to chapter 22 we've probably read the words we've heard the words now we're responsible to keep the words The many blessings described over the last few chapters 19, 20, 21, they're reserved for those who keep the words. This cannot be stressed strongly enough. It is not enough to say, I believe in God. It is not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. It's not enough to say, I read the Bible. The ultimate and eternal blessing is for those who keep these words. And the message here that's been consistent throughout the book and consistent throughout the entire Bible is that God alone is to be worshipped. Because God the Son, Jesus Christ, will come back to rule and to reign. And anyone not committed to keeping the words in this book, anyone worshipping something or someone other than Jesus will face eternal torment rather than eternal blessing. And this is a hard message for people to hear. It's a hard message to preach. I mean, certainly in the respect of those people who can't or won't comply to God's command, it's a hard thing to hear. But it's also an incredible joy to proclaim that God is real, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he is going to come to reclaim and reward his church. So John is hearing these words from the angel, and and after seeing many, many chapters of dark visions and dragons and beasts, but then hearing the the visions, seeing the descriptions of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all the blessings for those who believe, I think John is just completely overwhelmed. And just like he did once before, John reacts emotionally. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel, who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now, I don't think it's too difficult for us, for me anyway, to try to imagine how John must have been feeling at this point. I'm pretty sure we can't really get there. You know, we can't understand fully what he was... But I think we can understand his sense of being overwhelmed. Seeing all that he'd seen. uh, Understanding that he is in the the presence of something altogether transcendent and, and, and holy. And so he fell down to worship the feet of the angel. But of course, that feeling of transcendence and holiness didn't come from the angel... It was emanating from God. It it was passing through. And that's that's what John was reacting to. But the angel quickly corrected him. Now this is the second time John has made this mistake. Bowing down to worship an angel. We saw it back in chapter 19. John was given this vision of all the rejoicing that was going on in heaven. And it was the, the introduction of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel in that chapter said, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there was a blessing there. And then the angel said, these are the true words of God. So the account in chapter 19 is strikingly similar to what we see here in chapter 22. The angel describes a blessing for those who keep the word. And he says, these words are trustworthy and true. It's the same two factors involved. And the combination of the blessing and the, and the verification of truth, I think, hits John in just a, an overpowering kind of way. I'm inclined to believe that it highlights John, John's complete sense of reverence and, and awe and wonder at all that's happening. I don't think this was a willful rejection of God. It was a reaction to all that he was feeling and experiencing. And he bows down to worship the angel, which the angel corrects. He says, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant like you. I, like the other, you and the other prophets before you. I'm just a messenger. Worship God. Now, I don't pretend to know all the reasons why this occurs the way it does. I think the best we can do is draw an inference about this event with John, an inference based on the fact that he makes the same mistake twice. On two different occasions, he makes the mistake of attempting to worship an angel rather than the God who created the angel. And there are probably several other reasons for this, but I think at least one reason why this happened, and I think why it's recorded for us, is to show us, it is to remind us of how easily we can be misled or distracted by our emotions. How easily we can be moved away from what we say we believe to be true and move towards something that we feel to be true. And I think this is an important lesson for us because we live in an emotion based culture. Someone is trying to convince us, move us, make us feel something all the time. And if you think back to the the first few chapters in the book, the the letters to the churches, the letters to the churches in the first century, they remind us there that people were suffering. Believers were being persecuted for their faith. They were losing jobs. They were losing friends. Some some even lost their life. There are accounts recorded in those early letters. People lost their life for holding fast to their faith. And they're called to persevere and endure in spite of all that. Because we will be tested for our faith. And we know this is true. We we believe that was true then. We know this has existed throughout the church age. Christians have been persecuted throughout the world from the beginning. And as believers in the modern church age, we read this, we know this, we believe this to be true. We will be tested for our faith. And yet, we struggle with that emotional self that says... But wait, God loves us. God loves us. Why would he make us struggle? I'm pretty sure God wants us to be rich. I'm, I'm pretty sure God wants us to experience nonstop joy and ecstatic euphoria all the time, not suffering. I'm pretty sur- sure he doesn't want us to ever get sick. I'm pretty sure that I should be exceedingly popular and no one will ever ridicule me because Jesus loves me. We're all pretty sure that we're the best-looking people in the room because Jesus loves us. Those, those things sink in. And when our faith fails to reward us in the way we think it should... I mean, we're good, upstanding Christians, after all. Jesus owes us this stuff, we might think. And when these things don't come to pass, our emotion-based faith can damage our rational faith. We blame God. Or we question God. Or... We find a way to get those rewards we think we deserve without God. And we begin to chase the stuff. We idolize the world system of rewards. Money, success, popularity, fame, whatever, whatever that may look like. And that causes us to drift away from our rational, biblical faith. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He says, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. So our changing moods will alter or try to alter our reason if we're not careful if we're not prepared, if we don't see that coming. You know, the fastest growing segment of Christianity right now, internationally, is the prosperity gospel movement. It is a fake, anti-Christ gospel based on the feel-good message that Jesus died for your sins, and if you commit your life to him, he will make you rich and happy today. It is a gospel of instant gratification designed to play on your desires and your emotions which ultimately leads people to ruin and despair when it doesn't work out the way they think it should. Scripture consistently says Jesus died for your sins. He died to suffer the pain and to pay the penalty that we owe. And if we receive his gift of atonement, we will be rich and happy, but not necessarily anytime soon. We still live in this world, and this world is not our home. We will be fulfilled here, I think we can, we can be fulfilled. We can find purpose. We will be blessed. Likely just not the way that we think or expect. But we cling to the fact that in my Father's house are many mansions. It's going to be mine someday. I'm just going to have to wait for that tour. It may not be now. Lewis goes on to say that while we're here, while we're here looking forward to there, we have to recognize that our faith, that basing our faith on our moods is shifting sand. Our emotions change all the time. Truth does not change. So we have to ask every once in a while, what is ruling our life? What is our faith based on? We have to work at keeping the central truth of our faith before us daily. We have to read the word of God on a regular basis. We have to pray for wisdom and discernment. We have to spend time in, in meaningful worship with fellow believers. Attend a church that preaches the full word of God, not little snippets designed to make you feel better about your life. And that's the best hedge against being led astray into worship of something or someone other than God. Being rooted in the word. And that's exactly what the angel tells John. He says, hey, knucklehead. Let's paraphrase. <laughs> Don't worship me. Worship God period don't be distracted by the circumstance don't get caught up in the emotion of the moment keep your eyes fixed on God and this is an important lesson for John to hear along with all the others that he's heard throughout this because the angel goes on to say and don't seal up the words of this prophecy don't seal up the good, good news of this book everyone needs to hear this message whether they like it or not whether they receive it or not They need to hear it because the time is near. Now, again, we're not going to get drawn up into a discussion of what near means. But even as the angel says, put this book out there for everyone to hear, he knows, the angel knows that hearing is not the same as believing and doing. The evildoer, he says, will continue to do evil. The filthy will continue to be filthy. The, The righteous will continue to do right. The holy will continue to be holy. I think the, the, the angel's referencing what he knows about human behavior and the fact that after a while people develop patterns of behavior and it becomes difficult to change. Not impossible. Never impossible. But difficult. You remember when we read through the seals and the and the and the trumpets and we, we remember reading about the earth dwellers, even while acknowledging that God was behind that, God God was causing the chaos, God was calling causing things to fall apart, they cursed him rather than turning to him. They hid from him rather than running to him. But they had heard the message. They can't say they didn't know the truth. And the truth is, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the First and the Last, the Beginning and the End. Behold, I am coming soon. Yep, there's that word soon again. Does this mean anything different from the first two times? Nope. It is going to happen. We just don't know when. And with all the debate that goes on around this word soon, I think the discussion misses the point. I think Jesus, that's just used here to get our attention, to tell us, stay awake, pay attention. This is going to happen. The coming part That's the most important part, not the soon part. Behold, I am coming, and I'm bringing recompense with me. And recompense means reward. This is another Old Testament reference to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62 is all about the salvation that is to come. And verse 11 says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So when Jesus comes back for the second and final time, he's going to bring with him recompense, reward. Now, I think most of us understand that that we enjoy, certainly enjoy benefits and, and, and God's blessing in this life. He created an amazing world. I mean, we've managed to mess it up. It's not all it could be. But he created an amazing world. And there are many blessings in this life. We have good food and and loving spouses and kids and grandkids and good books and not necessarily in that order, but you get my meaning. There are a lot of good things in this world. It's an amazing creation. But of course, as a result of man's fall from grace, it also includes a lot of heartache. It includes sorrow to go along with it. So when the prosperity gospel folks tell you that you can enjoy the full blessing of God's favor right now this verse kind of says otherwise the full recompense the full reward is not yet to come the full measure of blessing comes with the second coming of King Jesus true recompense and true reward come with him and just over the last couple chapters we've been given an idea of what this is going to look like but we have to note there's also a note of I don't know, something like a, maybe some sense of doom in this verse. Jesus is going to repay each of us for what we have done. And and we just read about the evildoers and, and the filthy and the righteous and the holy. So some will be blessed. And the evildoers and the filthy will be repaid accordingly for what they have done. But Jesus reminds us here of his, his position, his ability... To do exactly what he says he's going to do. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And I think this is another nod to the doctrine of the Trinity that's been found throughout Revelation. I'm just going to show this quickly because I think this is kind of amazing. Back in chapter 1-8 we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. And in 21, 6 and 7, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. I mean, that's we've heard that throughout the Old Testament, right? I will be your God, and you will be my people. But then we also read the same language from Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's easy to, 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 to miss over this stuff, but I think this is meant to secure in our thoughts and our beliefs that Jesus is God, is the Spirit, is Jesus, is God. Even if we don't fully grasp it, it remains true. And God alone, Jesus alone, can do all the things he said he's going to do here. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this is the final of the seven benedictions, the final of seven blessings that are found in Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And we've heard this idea of robes or garments mentioned several times throughout the book now. And we know that this idea of the robe, the the, the white robe or the garment, it, it implies several ideas. The first is that as a result of our salvation, by asking forgiveness of our sins, by committing to Jesus as Lord of our life, Our sins have been cleansed, and we've been given this metaphoric white robe. It represents our holiness, our forgiveness. Through no part on our own, apart from receiving the gift of salvation, it's been given to us. But then we are called to keep our robes clean. So we are to strive for holiness. We are to try to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're called to emulate the life of Christ as best we can. Two of the seven blessings in Revelation refer to our holiness by using the image of robes or garments. You can see it here. Blessed are those who read aloud and hears and keeps the word. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy. And then those who stay awake keeping their garments on, those who wash their robes. Those are describing the same thing. It implies effort on our part. We have to work at keeping our garments on and clean. Which is just another way of saying, keep the words of the prophecy. Keep the words in this book. Work out your faith in fear and trembling. And we know from the rest of the book that doing these things, we know from living life, doing these things will not always be easy. We're going to be tempted. We're going to be distracted by the beast, by the dragon. We'll be harassed and harangued by the earth dwellers. We'll be persecuted and ridiculed by the world. But we're called to persevere and endure and overcome. And the overcomers, those who wash their robes, will have the right to the tree of life. We, the perseverers, we get to enter the city, described in the last chapter. We get to join in new jerusalem that's the ultimate and eternal blessing but we have to say here again there is a distinction drawn between two classes of people the blessed the christ followers are going to be rewarded with life in this glorious city in the presence of almighty god while the non-believers those who have rejected christ those who are perhaps christian in name only are kept outside the city and those are the evildoers mentioned already. And this is kind of harsh language here. I mean, it just it just is. The unsaved, those outside the city are referred to as dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this distinction could not be any clearer than it is here again at the end. Nor could the outcome be any more different. And notice it doesn't just say those who do evil. It says, everyone who loves and practices the lie, the alternative, anything that is not God or Jesus. So this implies intent. This implies, I think, a decision. They choose to love the things other than God. They choose to practice deception. Sin becomes a lifestyle. It's not just an occasional slip-up. It's not just an occasional act of of evil or sin, which we all do. This implies a lifestyle, a choice. And it's interesting, I think, here that sexual immorality is one of the ones listed, because that's, I mean, clearly one of the prevailing areas of sin in our culture is sexual immorality. And it takes a lot of forms. Uh, Sex outside of marriage, uh, pornography, uh, the whole myriad of, of sex and gender issues, which are becoming so prevalent and seeking, seeping into our school systems as well. But as a culture, we've been sold the idea that love is love. We can't help it. The heart wants what the heart wants. We can choose our gender and sexuality based on how we feel. And scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things. That should not be the basis those kinds of decisions. Emotion frequently leads us away from truth, not towards it. I think any couple married more than five years will affirm that love is a feeling, but it is first and foremost a choice. You choose to stay married. Choosing to love and follow Jesus consistently is also a choice. Which means not choosing him is also a choice. And choices have consequences. That's been consistent throughout Scripture, throughout this book. So we see that the manner of sin or sinful lifestyle really is irrelevant in this section. There are several things listed which cause us to be outside of the gate. It doesn't matter what sin we enter into. It doesn't matter what sin we choose to practice. That keeps us separated. And it becomes the deterring factor for eternal life versus eternal torment. And the difference is Jesus. What did you do with Jesus? Who or what do you worship? I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So we're seeing here, we're drawing to this conclusion of the book. It's the, the culmination, the summary of the entire book, as well as the culmination and fulfillment of all of history. We already saw the connections between Alpha and Omega, first and last, and now Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David. This has already come up once in Revelation in chapter 5. We see it in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 11.1 1, and eleven one and 11.10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. These are all just Old Testament references to this Jesus as the root of David. He's tying all of history together with a bow. We see it in Mark's Gospel where Jesus points out that he is both the son of David and the Lord of David. There's a strong connection throughout history. He refers to himself here as the bright morning star. This likely goes back to the book of Numbers, and this is an interesting story where where Balaam offers an oracle that describes a savior, a redeemer who is going to come. And he, he describes that redeemer as a star that comes out of Jacob, as a scepter out of Israel, who's going to crush the forehead of Moab. Now, Balaam's oracle applied, as it turns out, to both the dynasty of King David that was going to come But it also applies to the dynasty of King Jesus, which will come and eventually reign forever. So again, we're seeing all these loose threads of history and prophecy all coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. Then we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, at first glance, when we read this, uh, we might think that this is the Spirit and the bride, you know, kind of in- inviting, begging Jesus to return. Jesus, come. I mean, that's a sentiment I think we all understand on an increasingly regular basis. We look at the culture, we look at the world, and we think, yeah, we're ready. Boy, howdy. Come, Jesus. But because the Spirit and the bride both say, come. I think this more likely refers to the fact that until Jesus does return, we are still hopeful that non-believers are going to respond to the gospel. We, We are still hopeful and we are still inviting them to come. The Spirit and the church working together. Inviting the unbelievers to come. So it says, let the one who hears say, come. We know that not everyone's going to respond positively to the good news of salvation. And yet, we're still called to share the message. To invite them to come. We, we, we share, and, and we pray, and we, we we spread the gospel and hope that they come. And I, I think this, this way of looking at it is affirmed by, it goes on to say, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take water of life without price. This is to the unbeliever. This is directed to unbelievers. I think it's another reference from Isaiah. Chapter 55, verse 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. So at the tail end of this letter, this has to be seen as one final appeal to the lost from the Spirit of God. God doesn't want any to perish. One last time, Spirit of God, church, work together, invite people to come. It almost reads like, oh, unbeliever. Hear, read, respond. We see the heart of God, and we see the love of Jesus being poured out here. One more last-ditch effort. And then there's this post- Postscript at the very end. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will. a vision assigned it's time to end <laughs> so the idea of adding or taking away from the word we've we probably all heard this a lot over the years um, we often I think consider this to be a warning against false teachers or um, maybe legalists you know who like to keep adding extra burdens onto the scripture um, and, and I think it probably has application there uh, maybe we think about applying to other you know holy scriptures that have come along over the years I think that applies also But honestly, I feel like the warning here is much more personal and is intended for each and every believer, not just false teachers, not just cult leaders, because we see a similar warning given back in Deuteronomy. Uh, As the statutes and laws were handed down through Moses to the Israelites, they were told in Deuteronomy 4, you shall not add to the word or take away from it. And it was more emphatic in Deuteronomy 29, One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Yeah. There it is. I don't even know what that means, but I don't think I want the Lord to smoke against me. (laughs) So here this message is aimed at those Israelites who on the surface looked as though they were keeping the statutes. They were doing the rituals. They were going through the routines. They looked as though they were faithful followers of Jehovah, but their hearts said otherwise. Their hearts were not faithful. They were in fact guilty of idolatry. They were worshiping something else entirely on the inside. I think that's the idea here. In, in, in fact, this letter of Revelation closes in much the same way it started, with a stern warning to believers and so called believers. The seven letters to the seven churches in the very beginning pointed out how many, or at least some, of the believers in those churches were failing in the faithful obedience department. They were issued these warnings early on. Their hearts, some of them, our hearts, some of us, are divided. They, sometimes us, less faithful and less obedient than we pretended to be. So the letters to the churches sought to correct that. They were told in those early letters, go back to your first love. Stop listening to false apostles, false prophets. Know the truth of God so you can spot lies. Stop trying to find a balance between loving God and loving the world. Stop giving into the same temptations as the unbelievers don't buy into the sexual immorality. Don't adopt the morality of the culture. It seems clear that in that context, this warning at the end is intended to be a wake up call to the church of every age. And the call is check yourself constantly, check your idols. What is the true center of your worship? Is it Jesus, your Redeemer? Is it your 401k, your Savior? Is it your level of comfort in this life? What is it you're most heart-heavy about? Are you committed to following the commands of the word, faithful and true? Or are you trying to find some hybrid path that allows you to look redeemed on the outside, but live like the unredeemed? Do we find ourselves thinking every once in a while, but did God really mean, did God really say, that so we check ourselves are you spending time in the word is regular attendance with the local body of Christ a priority or is it a convenience is it an accessory is it something that you would die for we've been shown here in this book in very dramatic detail that a life of faith is ultimately rewarding and glorious and intermittently difficult and laborious Faith that endures, that perseveres, that overcomes, faith that is rewarded is not situational or convenient. It's going to be tested. And testing reveals our faithful obedience. Do we trust God? Do we trust our salvation in Christ? No matter the circumstance that we are in. is our heart's desire to share in the tree of life and to retire in the holy city because that's what's at stake when we walk in faith worthy of our calling we get a little bit excited maybe a lot a lot a bit relieved when we read he who testifies to these things says Surely I am coming soon. And all God's people say, Amen. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And until that great and glorious day comes, what's it tell us? May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. So we've got that to look forward to. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father God, what a trip this has been in pretty much every meaning of that word. um, This has been a challenging, insightful, faith-questioning, faith-building exercise through this book. We are grateful for the the gift that it has been for us, um, for how it has helped prepare us, I hope, I think, for the culture that we live in, for the world that is to come. Lord, it doesn't answer all the questions that we're all dying to know, uh, so we can set our calendars by your return, but it does tell us how we are to live until then. It does tell us that there is hope beyond how things look, uh, beyond how how dark and, and disturbing and unsettling the culture may become. Lord, there is hope, and we are carriers of that hope if we are faithful followers of Christ and I pray that you embolden us you encourage us you quicken us to share the good news that we have with those around it or may we have a a renewed desire uh, to share the gospel the good news with whoever we happen to run into even if it seems like it's a a hopeless case we don't know that we are just called to share so I pray that you uh, allow this this text allow these sermons to to build our faith to encourage us to to keep us mindful of the the fact that we are called to keep the words that are contained herein we are called to to walk in a worthy manner as as much as often as near to Christ as we can knowing that we're going to screw up once in a while But we can move towards sanctification we can move towards holiness because you already consider us that way You will empower us to live that way. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name.